that anything can change. So uh, that's what we're talking about today. I think those are really important questions uh, for any intellectual person to consider. Our text is a little bit of Genesis 2 that we read last week, and then all of 3. So starting in chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit. She ate. She gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. To dust you shall return. The woman called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life and eat, and live forever. Therefore God sent him out from the garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim, which seems to be some kind of angelic figure, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Alright, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me if you like. Our great Father, we are uh, confronted here with a very difficult text, and difficult in about ten different ways. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us sharp minds, soft hearts, and uh, help us, Lord, to make sense of this brokenness in, that we see in the world, and uh, to come out of this with uh, a, a, a realistic measure of hope, if it's indeed warranted. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 
So uh, there, are, are, there are a number of movies that are pretty close to being guarantees to make only uh, almost any man cry. And not just me, almost any man cry. Um, Field of Dreams would be one. Uh, Die Hard, maybe. Uh, no, uh, but The Pursuit of Happiness, I think, is one. If you've watched The Pursuit of Happiness, it's a 2006 film with Will Smith, uh, for which he received an Oscar nomination. He, uh, he plays a man who's got about the worst uh, run of luck a man could possibly have. He's bright. He works hard. He's a good father. Uh, but despite all his hard work and his ingenuity, he just confronts difficulty after difficulty. He says at one point, halfway through the movie, while he's working really hard trying to make ends meet, when I was young and did something well, I'd get this good feeling about all the things I could be. And I never became any of them. You can just hear the disappointment. The movie has lots and lots of valleys. It really does. It's one of the reasons I like the movies. It's uh, realistic. It's a story that tells the truth about human condition. Uh, Like when his wife leaves him. She just can't deal with the financial insecurity anymore. And she just leaves and never comes back. And when his five-year-old son asks, when's mama coming back? There's no answer to that question. Um, Unpaid parking tickets land him in jail. Um, He's evicted for unpaid taxes. Loses his home. But the lowest point of the movie is, is the night he has to spend in the subway bathroom. If you've seen the movie, you remember this. They have no home. And they're homeless. And uh, he has to convince his son that this is a game. And his son who's five believes him. And as his son falls asleep in his lap in the subway bathroom, uh, Will Smith, playing the character of Chris Gardner, uh, silently weeps. And you can imagine the kind of questions he's asking himself. What did I do wrong? Will anything ever good happen to me? Can I ever be happy in this world? How does a well-intentioned, bright, hard-working, this is a true story, by the way, uh, good father end up evicted, broken, crying in a bathroom over his son. How does that kind of brokenness make sense in this world? How does it make sense? How do you explain that? You know, brokenness, suffering, injustice like that is experienced by billions of people every day. Really. I mean, that's the story of lots of people in the world. Not just like that, but very much like that. Suffering, poverty, injustice occurs to them every day. We are not at all acquainted with that. Right? With that kind of suffering. But just for a second, so I don't lose you. Think about it. Probably the most prosperous culture ever. With more financial and material prosperity and security than any culture ever. And you look around and people are exhausted, anxious, busy, looking for love, not finding it, lonely. I'm describing you, right? And and your parents and people you know. Why all the brokenness with us? How do you explain all the brokenness in the world and all that's wrong with us? What happened? What happened to the world that it's like this? It's a... I would say that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. I would say that the world was not created this way. And uh, we talked about this at length last week. That there was a world we were created for, and it was beautiful. 
And we long for that because we were made for that. But we live here. And that's why we're frustrated and sad and long for a place that's different. Uh, the, the question is, if, uh, if things are broken, how did it happen? How did it get this way? And the answer that we're going to talk about all the rest of our time together is that the world, though it's still beautiful, is broken. It's broken because there was a fall. Because there was a fall, the world is broken. And um, we're going to talk about that fall today in, uh, in three topics. Uh, that there was a broken trust. And that broken trust had implications or ramifications. It led to broken people and a broken home. So we start off with a perfect world, but there's a broken trust that leads to broken people and a broken home. All right? By the way, outlines are here. They will always be here. Except for I put there too late. Never mind. Um, but that's the, that's the outline. Broken trust, broken people, broken home. Um, so I read a little bit from Genesis 2, and we have these perhaps strange-to-you verses uh, here. God has created this perfect garden for this people, put Adam and Eve there, and he's given them this wonderful job. And I talked last week how everything fits together. Uh, I used, the word I used was kingdom, but they have a perfect home where all the things that we want in life fit together. Relationships work like they're supposed to. The job works. He has a sense of purpose. They're called to take the blessings of this garden and push it out into the world. It's the best job description ever. And they could do it. It was a job full of responsibility that would meet all their dreams of ambition, and they could do it. Uh, So a sense of purpose, uh, great relationships, and a perfect place. And uh, what happens is that all falls apart. It all falls apart because God makes this living arrangement conditional. It's conditional. It's called a covenant. And the covenant was pretty simple. Uh, Adam and Eve, this is your home. And this is your calling. And this is yours to enjoy and your children's to enjoy forever. But it's conditional. You have to obey me. It's one thing you can't do. It's one thing. Just one thing you can't do. You can't eat from that tree. Okay, it's clear enough. It's conditional. And uh, what happens is that condition is broken. Uh, it, it begins with an outside influence. And I think that's important to note that the way God created the world was good. We don't have all the answers to all the questions. I don't propose that I do. But uh, a deceiver comes in, it seems, in the, strange of this, uh, in, in the form of this strange creature in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And uh, he deceives. And what he, what he does is he distorts God's words. He takes the words of God that he says in chapter 2. And he twists them. And his strategy is to engender distrust. He's trying to use God's words against God to lead the woman into not trusting God. So you can tell in the way he asked the question, he said to the woman, did God actually say to you that you can't do that? The mere way he asked the question means, is God being unreasonable to you? Did he really say that? And it moves on in in verses 4 and 5 to an open denial of God's word. In in verse 4, he goes on and says, You will not surely die. God says you will surely die. Uh, Whatever this dark power is, is is, uh, proud enough, um, arrogant enough to say the exact opposite in God's face. You will not surely die. He questions God's goodness in the process. It's really important to note that. Uh, and then what he also does, besides uh, twisting and distorting God's words, is he disregards God. 
God introduces himself in the Bible with a particular title. You see it in chapter 2. His name is the Lord God. It's actually really important. This uh, dark power never calls him that. He just calls him God, like with a little G. And as he does this, uh, Eve begins to follow suit. She begins to call him God, with a little G. Why does this make a big difference? Because the Lord God, that's his name. Behind that name is a relationship. Behind that name is God's authority. And the devil basically is saying, the Lord God, the God you know, the God that's been close to you, that walks in the garden, that loves you, it's just a God. He's distant. He doesn't care. It's sort of like this. It's, it's when my son, he's never done this. That's why he's still alive. But it's when my son, whom I love, I'm just kidding, by the way. None of you social workers need to call anybody. Um, it's when the Lord God, uh, it's, it's when my son, whom I love, all of a sudden, maybe like hopefully this won't happen for years, doesn't call me dad, doesn't even call me father. He calls me, hey, old man. Like, he distances me from the relationship, and I am just another person. And when he does that, you know there's a problem with disrespect and a problem with relationship. That's what's going on here. God has ceased to be close and intimate, a loving father to Eve. He's just a distant deity who doesn't care, who's not there, who's not in charge. That's what this dark power wants her to think, and that's what she thinks. And so once God's goodness is questioned, once the relationship is questioned, once his authority is questioned, what's left? What's left is her desire. That's all that's left. And that's what happens. She looks. It looks good. She wants to be. She wants to know. The desire to know uh, good and evil is there. So she takes it. So this is really important. It's really important. This is how sin and temptation works in your life. We all have desires. Every single one of us. And all of us have desires that we know aren't good. And, and lots of times uh, we don't act on those. But there are lots of times we do. And almost always it's when we convince ourselves or someone convinces us that God doesn't care, that God is distant, that it doesn't matter, that He doesn't care for us, and He won't provide for us. It becomes so easy for us to do what? Whatever we want. To look out for ourselves. To become our own king and our own God. And that's what happens here. So she uh, disobeys the one commandment God told her to keep. The one thing God told her not to do, she does. And uh, we hate this word, obedience or disobedience. We really do hate the word, obedience. Uh, I think we... Am I right? Who likes the word obedience? Who likes the word obedience? Anybody? You? One? So I like the word because I'm a dad. Um, But we really hate it. Because we don't want to acknowledge that there's an authority greater than us that we actually have to submit to. Right? We all functionally want to be our own king. We want to be the people. We want to have the right to establish what's right and wrong for us. That's That's what she wanted. The right to know what's good and evil and to make what's good and evil for her. To make those decisions and say, I'm the king of my own life. I determine what's right and wrong. That's what we want. That's why we hate the word obedience. We only want to be obedient to our own desires. And uh, a lot of questions here regarding that, though. Uh, Do you actually have the right to do that? Did God make the world in such a way that you have that right? Did God make you in such a way that you have the right? And this is a big one that we never ask ourselves. The devil or this dark power has this first couple questioning God's goodness. Do you ever question your goodness? 
I mean, the choices you make, the desires you have, do you ever question them? I mean, I look around at humanity and the decisions it makes, and I say, man, we're a mess. Like, seriously, I don't want to trust people at all because they're incredibly unwise, right? Am I wrong? Aren't people unwise? Don't people make dumb decisions? How many of you have not made a terribly dumb decision at some point? You've all made dumb decisions. Uh, But we so easily trust ourselves. We think we can rule our own lives like kings and make our own decisions. But do you really think that's wise? Not only right, but do you even think it's wise? It's not wise. Well, I'm talking too long about this point. I need to move quickly, and I'm going to. Man's made beautifully in God's image to trust God, and the world is made in such a way that when man obeys God, he lives sort of a blessed existence in this perfect kingdom. Everything clicks and works in an integrated form. Um, but as soon as this happens, things begin to break. And the first thing that breaks are the people themselves. Almost immediately after this choice, what happens in verse 7? And they go into hiding. They immediately go into hiding. And I said last week that uh, one of the reasons I'm cynical about romance is because after you read the end of chapter 2, with this first couple naked and unashamed in front of one another, it's all downhill romantically in human history ever since then. I mean, that was like the most beautiful romantic thing ever. This open-faced vulnerability and intimacy, and it's gone. It's gone forever. It's gone for good. Uh, We are now, as humans, filled with guilt and shame. She eats, and the knowledge of good and evil is not the ability to determine what's right and wrong for ourselves. It's that you now know that you're wrong. It's that you now know that you're a rebel. And that you carry in you guilt and shame. And it's immediate. It's immediate for these two. They eat, and they go into hiding. And, uh, And it's real. It's amazing. We've been hiding ever since. Talk real quickly about guilt and shame. Uh, these aren't just subjective feelings. They're real. And, and, the, and the guilt here is real. God asks uh, not like, hey, how do you feel about this? He says, hey, what did you do? He looks at them hiding. He looks at their shame and immediately says, did you eat of the tree? Your shame is because you've done something you weren't supposed to. And uh, they've broken the trust. They've broken the covenant. They are judicially guilty in God's sight. They really are guilty. Now, sometimes we're guilty about things we don't need to be. There is such a thing as false guilt and false shame. But uh, that's not what's going on here. They really are guilty. And they feel guilty. And they really are ashamed. And they're hiding because of it. Um, you know, what, what's going on here is uh, cosmic treason. They've basically chosen to trust themselves and a dark, evil power over their good creator who lives in a relationship with them. They realize that now. They feel guilty and ashamed because it's true. They should be. Um, and, and the Bible in other places tells us that we're made as creatures that know a couple things. That God exists. And we try to suppress that knowledge. We try to make God as distant as possible so we can choose to do whatever we want. That's Romans 1. You can read that. And secondly, that God made us as creatures in His image and we know what's right and wrong. We really do know what's right and wrong. And we suppress that knowledge too. Except when we hold other people to those standards. We do this all the time. Read Romans 2. We, ha- we know what's right and wrong and I expect you to keep it. I expect you to treat me with love and respect. I really do. But I won't always treat you that way. <laughs> 
we, we do this all the time. This is what Romans 2 says. We know that there's a right and wrong, and we break it, and we're constantly filled with guilt and shame. And you might not believe me that you're filled with shame, but I'm pretty sure you are. I think we all are. We're all pretty good at hiding. Some of us are better than others. Some of us are really good at hiding by talking about how we hide. I've had some really good students this in the past. I'm going to give you some faux vulnerability to throw you off my tracks. Um, but we really are good at hiding. We hide behind our busyness. We hide behind our performance. We hide any way we can so people won't see what's really going on deep inside. Uh, the reality is we live in a, in a what I call a, I call, someone else is called a shame chamber. Um, do you have this? The lyrics? So, uh, one of the bands I uh, really like recently uh, is a guy named Kurt Vile. Anybody a Kurt Vile fan? He's actually from Philly. He, uh, part of the reason I like him is because his band name is Kurt Vile and the Violators. Uh, they were actually, he broke off from the War on Drugs. So if you dug the War on Drugs album in 2014, go listen to Kurt Vile. Anyway, he wrote, a, he wrote an art, uh, a song called Shame Chamber. And man, I think it's genius. I think he's just writing about life in this world when you know yourself, and the world is built in such a way that it's just heaping shame on you. Everyone's saying, I should probably give up. Hey, I wouldn't want to waste no time. How can I even look myself in the mirror? Then again, why would I? It's just another day in the shame chamber. Living life to the lowest power. Feeling bad in the best way a man can. Shame on you, shame on you, shame on you. Oh baby, when you cry, it brings a tear to my eye. Oh, shame on us. Man, you should listen to this song. Uh, not only because it's raw, but it's also really good. I'm not, I'm not kidding. It's a, it's a great song. Uh, but he's on to something. We really are, for the most part, walking around life trying to manage our shame and hide it from others. But, and I, I'm not trying to heap shame onto you. I'm just trying to say, this is a product of what happened to us. That we're guilty and ashamed. Uh, because we're broken. We're broken people. Uh, if you want to know more about this in a really thoughtful way, a book I would recommend for you is Timothy Keller's book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He does a really great job talking about this. So, uh, but lastly, when, when God created man, he created the world in such a way that we would take the blessings of it and move it out. In other words, we were created with such intimate connection to the world that we were supposed to make a good place even better. That's a remarkable capacity, a remarkable power. So what happens when the center of creation goes bad? What happens when we go bad to the rest of the world? It all falls apart. And that's what happened. The fall, the fall happened, and the fractures have split through everything. Split through us. We're broken morally, mentally, psychologically. All of us. I think we're all messed up pretty much in all those ways. But everything we touch is therefore messed up. We, have a, we now live in a broken home. And um, that first world I talked about last week, how it was beautiful, it all fit together. Uh, it was this integrated place where personhood, relationships, purpose, all came together. And it's all broken apart now. We, we desperately try to pull all those things together and hold it together. And it's always slipping through our fingers. And we're asking ourselves, will we ever get these things together to be happy? Uh, you find out really quickly after this incident that the relational peace that existed between God and his people and then the people themselves is gone. It's replaced with discord. It's amazing how quickly this happens. They go into hiding from God. God hunts them down and says, what happened? And what do they do? They start blaming each other. 
almost immediately. One chapter earlier, the most romantic moment in human history. Seriously, the most it was amazing. Next chapter, what happened? The woman, the woman, <laughs> the woman did it. And not only blaming her, blames God. The woman you gave me. You hear that? I mean, Adam is blaming his wife and God for what happened. And uh, the, the blame, the spin, has been going on ever since. See, we so culpably feel guilt and shame that we work really hard to put it on anybody else. We really do. We're great blame shifters. We don't want to bear it. So we blame our parents. We blame our school. We blame our teachers. Man, if you could hear yourself objectively whine about your teachers because you're slackers in your studies. I mean, okay. Now I'm wondering about you. I'll stop doing that. But seriously, we're really good at this. We're going to take our, our insufficiencies and put it on somebody else. And we've been doing it ever since this. So discord replaces peace. This perfect integration of purpose, it all falls apart. This first couple, they had a great job. Their job was to take the blessings of that first garden that was beautiful and push it into the world. It would have been beautiful to do this. It would have been amazing. You would have never felt a day where your job didn't matter. It's the most significant thing in the world. And now we can't find jobs. When we get them, we don't like them. And when we get them, they exhaust us. And, and God tells this couple, Adam and Eve, this is what work's going to be like now. It's going to be back-breaking and exhausting, Adam. You're going to work yourself to death to feed your family. You're going to work yourself to death to feed your family. And then when you're done working the ground, you're going to return to it. And you'll be dust. And this original call to fill the world with blessing, to, to grow happy families, to fill the world, to make it a beautiful place, even that's going to be hard. You're going to have these babies, and it'll still be beautiful, but it's going to be terribly difficult. People will die because of it, or in the midst of it. And then, Adam, you've got to take care of these babies. That'll be exhausting, and provide for them. Welcome to life in this broken world. And if that's not enough, this perfect place they lived in, their home, the garden, it's gone. They're evicted. They're shown the door. They're homeless. They're out. And in the last couple of verses, we really, it becomes clear what, what God meant when he said that they would die. In Genesis 2, 15 through 17, he's like, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And they eat from the tree, and you're thinking, like, okay, where's the thunderbolt? Aren't, why aren't they dead yet? When God says you will surely die, I'm waiting for, like, a great hand from the sky to come down and crush them, or the, the earth open up and swallow them. But, but God tells them here, you will surely die. You, you will turn into dust. You will die and you will rot. And, uh, but and that's the physical death that we all are going to experience that we all try to forget all the time. We're really good at forgetting that we're going to die. Um, this is a really sad message, isn't it? And then um, the spiritual death is just as true. They lived in God's presence. In the midst of his goodness, he wanted to be with them. He was with them all the time in this garden. And now they're gone forever. He shows them the door and makes sure they never come back. That is spiritual death. That is judgment. Absence from God's love and life and light is spiritual death. And that's the condition we're born into. We don't have the access to him that we're supposed to. And that's the way that we will live our entire lives unless He shows us the door and brings us back in. So uh, that's, frankly, that's the world that we live in, in a nutshell. Because we broke trust with God, this perfect kingdom that we originally knew or would have known is now broken. 
that we our people is broken. We're broken psychologically, mentally, emotionally, uh, morally. Not as broken as we could be, but we're broken. And the world's broken. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And uh, the Bible tells us why it's that way. Uh, there's, a, there's a story that we tell ourselves all the time, almost all of you know it, that I think really accurately sums up this whole thing. In fact, I could have said this at the beginning, and then said like three sentences, and maybe been done. Maybe I should do that next time. It goes like this. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Actually, that's a really good summary of what just happened. That there was a tremendous fall, and that the might of all the king's resources, nor all the ingenuity and brilliance of the king's best men, can fix what's broken in this world. I mean, we've been trying for a long time. We've never had a more optimistic couple centuries in the last two about the human ability to fix the brokenness of this world. And you can make a strong argument there have never been two worse centuries in human history than the last two. So where, where, where does that leave us? Do we have any hope? Any reason for hope? There is reason for hope, and it's simply this. Not every resource was used to save Humpty Dumpty. Hang with me on this one. <laughs> so, all the king's horses and all the king's men, that's good. But what about the king? I mean, really, did the king not care about Humpty Dumpty? I don't know. Forget Humpty Dumpty, screw him. We don't care about Humpty Dumpty. Hey, he's, just a, he's just a serf. We don't care about Humpty Dumpty. Just let him lay there, fractured. Uh, maybe he doesn't care. Or maybe the king couldn't do anything. But in our story, the king does care. In our story, the king cares. This will be really quick, but it's really important. Man, as dark as this chapter is, and if you read the next couple chapters, it gets darker and darker. And it really accurately describes this world. Uh, As dark as this chapter is, there's hope, and it's this. The king cares. He really cares. I don't know if you noticed this, but this couple, they've committed treason. Okay, They've chosen to serve themselves and a dark, evil power over their good king, over the father that created them. And what does he do? He shows them the door. But they're going to walk out into the world naked wearing fig leaves. They know nothing about the world. It's like my five and six year old children, four and six, walking out into the world. They don't know anything about life out there. And they're like dressed in their underwear. That's all they got. And, and God looks and, and, and they're traitors. They deserve to die. And God's like, whoa, whoa. Let me take care of you. And he provides for them. He, he still cares for them. What infinite compassion that he would still care for them at all. But there's more. And it's in verse 15, chapter 3. It's worth looking at real quick. And then we'll be done. I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the, to the serpent, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And what we have here is God making a promise that at some point, God's going to send someone to deal with what caused all this. That evil will not stand and that someone will come eventually, a champion and address this and fix this. In other words, God's not done with this mess. He doesn't leave the fractured, broken mess laying on the ground and walk away. He cares. And He promises that He's going to come. And the rest of this whole story, the rest of this whole story is that story. It's who is this person that's going to come? 
When's he going to come? What's he going to be like? How's he going to fix it? That's what the rest of the entire Bible is about. That's what we're going to study the rest of the semester in God's grand story. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Father, I thank you for these students and their patience. And uh, Lord, any way uh, you want to approach, or we want to approach the topic of the world's brokenness, we all have to admit that things are a terrible mess. And that there is much suffering and injustice in the world. 